in the latter days and rebuilt. Now that fits then with all the other scriptures that we have looked at concerning the destruction of the end time spiritual temple and how a remnant of it will come back together. So understanding the end of this is very important. You can tie in Matthew 24 as well because the, the disciples, when they asked the question about the temple and what would happen to it, they were looking at the physical temple as it stood in that day. And indeed, it was torn down <clears throat> shortly thereafter. It has been in rubble since the temple itself, but Jerusalem, the city, has not. Now, Christ, in Matthew 24, immediately did what when he was asked those questions? He immediately began talking about the end times. They referred to the physical temple in front of them, and he immediately turned it into a prophecy of the end of the age and the end of the world. So, the temple he was referring to, obviously, was the end time temple, the spiritual temple, the church. And he said, war and conflict would occur, the love of many would wax cold because of disobedience, and they would then begin to persecute the church. Now, as we get into this today, I intend to follow up on that thought. In fact, maybe now would be a good time to introduce it. Let's get it started now. Remember, I referred a couple of weeks ago to Daniel 8 and the ram and the goat that would have a conflict. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with that story. I only took it so far at that time. I have since read quite a bit that is available about why America must attack Iran, or someone must, whether it be Israel or a coalition of people or whatever. But in that story, one horn of the ram is knocked off, and then a bigger one comes up afterward, or is there, and it is knocked down. Then, the goat that came from the west without touching the ground has his horn knocked off. Now, I believe that this is referring to the United States as the empire from the west in end-time prophecy. I did not carry it on as to what is to happen next beyond saying that it appears at that point when that goat's horn is knocked off, his country is divided into four different sections, four different rulers, which means the autonomy of the United States has to go away and it will be ruled over by people who are governors of four different sections. We will not be a country as we know it at that point anymore. But then, if you are familiar with Daniel 8, it says that after the goat's horn is broken, then one of those four leaders of the sections of the country rises up a little horn and does what? Begins to persecute the church. So, if this view of Daniel 8 is correct, it appears that we would win in any battle with Iran, and then conditions will be such that we will get our own horn broken off, and our country will come apart and be ruled over in four different territories, 
or governances or however it is called. And then one of those leaders or rulers will come against the church to destroy the holy people and will set up the abomination that makes desolate. That's referred to at the end or toward the end of Daniel 8 and again in other places including Matthew 24. So the persecution upon the holy people or the people of God is not too far away and probably is laid out for us right there in Daniel 8. So the church and what is left of it after God has blown it apart is then going to be begin to be persecuted from the outside. And the time of tribulation will be here. So it does appear that events are moving very, very rapidly. Now he says, In the latter days you shall understand or consider it, verse 24. I don't think the disciples really understood what Christ said in Matthew 24. And I think that it is only now that we begin, can begin to understand these scriptures in the light of what is going on in the world here in Jeremiah. So he says, in the latter days you'll understand it. And begins another thought in chapter 31. But the time element is the same. He's talking about the latter days in chapter 30, verse 24. And then he begins chapter 31 at the same time. That is, in the latter days, at the end of the age. Now, there's some good news here, some beautiful promises that begin here. We've seen these promises made in Isaiah. We've seen some of them made in Haggai and Zechariah. But they are repeated here by God in Jeremiah. We've seen some pretty gloomy forecasts for the church, for spiritual Israel, and how it will be destroyed and become heaps and piles of rubble. But at the same time in the end, here's what we also are to understand. So with the destruction that we have been experiencing and the gloom and doom that we've been reading about in these chapters uh, is all going to be turned around. And there's a great deal of hope beginning here with chapter 31. At the same time, says the Eternal, will I be the God of all the families of Israel? And here again, we're speaking of spiritual Israel in the latter days at the same time. And they shall be my people. We have been in the mode where God couldn't look at us and would in some respects like to deny that we're his people because we don't look like him. We don't act like him. We haven't been what we ought to be. But it's going to change. They shall be my people. Thus says the eternal, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. A sword is going to come, has been coming spiritually, and it is about to come physically, including the people of the church, when that little horn of Daniel 8 turns on the church. And I think there's another uh, nail in that building saying that Daniel 8 is talking about America, because where, if you wanted to persecute the church of God today, would you go? Would you go to India? Pakistan? China? You wanted to persecute and kill most of those whom God has called into the church today, you would come to America. That's where you'd come. So if that little horn is going to persecute 
and destroy the holy people, where is that little horn located? Where the church is. Now those who are left out of all this famine and persecution and trouble that we're going through, spiritually and will physically soon, if we're not accounted worthy to escape it, where will a little group of people find grace? In the wilderness. In the wilderness. In a desert area. That is where God is going to show his grace on people. What is left of the church? I have said quite a few times that we are not strictly under the grace of God right now. Now, we can take the Protestant line that, all oh, we're under grace, we're under grace. Well, to some degree, that is true. If we did not have some favor of God and some grace of God right now, we would all be dead because we all have deserved to die as a result of the sins in our lives. So there's a certain amount of grace then extended, and yet on the other hand, the grace and good favor of God toward the church of God here at the end basically has been removed. Can we not see that? Do we feel that we have been under the absolute blessing of God as a worldwide organization? I mean, all the churches of God. Can you say that God has been pouring out blessings upon the church? Now, most organizations try to keep a stiff upper lip and talk about all the blessings they have. And perhaps, to one degree or another, being a part of the church of God, there are certain things that God will do as benefits to his people today. I think that we can say that we have received a certain amount of intervention from God and that we have received his direction in doing what it is that we are doing right here. I can see where he has intervened and given us what he has given us. And yet, on the other hand, even we, who can count our blessings in a way, still are looking for greater blessings, aren't we? Because even though he may have preserved us alive, he hasn't healed us all. Even though we may be here, we are still attached to this world to a certain degree. And that attachment, at some point, will be broken. Because those who obey God are going to find grace, his pleasure, his forgiveness, his mercy in the wilderness. That's where it's going to happen. He tells his people to leave the cities, go dwell in the field, and there you will be delivered, like before. To gather ourselves before the financial destruction occurs. And the decree of financial destruction on this country is very, very close to occurring. People in the world are writing about it a great deal now. They see the handwriting on the wall. The biggest investors, the billionaires, are saying that the American economy and American dollar has had it. So the time is close. It is imminent. So those who are left of this destruction in the church, the remnants will find grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, God will bring rest. It says in this another place, in this place will I bring peace. That's in the book of Haggai. The Eternal has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn you. 
Now, that's a little different word in a way, but it's the same thought as in the book of Haggai, where he says he will stir the people to come and build in the temple. So whether he stirs or whether he draws, the effect is the same. God will draw a people into the wilderness where they will receive his grace, his good favor, his blessing, and peace. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. We'll become spiritual virgins once more. Paul told the Corinthian church that he would present them as chaste virgins to Jesus Christ. As sinful a society as Corinth was, and with all that those people had come out of, God was going to forgive all that sin. Those people were going to repent, be transformed, overcome and grow, and be presented as chaste virgins before Christ, as spiritual reckoning. He tells us in other places in these prophecies, I will forgive your sin in one day. Wash all your iniquity out and present you spiritually as a virgin before Jesus Christ. That's why he speaks of the virgin daughter. You shall again be adorned with your tapres and shall go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Hard to imagine, isn't it? with the confusion and the frustration and the anxieties that we have today, being able to have that pressure taken away and be able to dance and sing and rejoice before God, knowing that we were in his good favor, knowing he's pleased with us again, that his face has turned and is smiling and beaming at us again. Now, growing and overcoming, changing admitting our faults, our weaknesses, even to ourselves, and going through the hard work of changing ourselves is difficult, frustrating, it's slow. It's, there's nothing really fun about it, is there? I, I never have found that changing me was any fun. It's difficult. It's lonely. It's frustrating. How often do we go to God and pour out our hearts before him about our lacks, our weaknesses, our needs, our desires, and how the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. We pour those feelings out to him. And we know that we need to be on the standard of Jesus Christ and we fall so far short of it. And it can be discouraging and frustrating. And at the same time, God says, if you will do this, I'll build you back. I'll look upon you as having never sinned. And you'll be able to dance and sing and make merry. <clears throat> you shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. <clears throat> Food for us, both spiritually and physically, will not be a problem. God is going to turn things around and we can plant and it will grow and it will produce and you won't have to worry about worms. You won't have to worry about drought or blight or disease, bugs or anything else, because God is going to make it as a garden of Eden. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. 
I think there is more evidence here that perhaps America is Ephraim and Britain is Manasseh. Most of the church was in America. And the watchman, I believe, will be in America. The place of safety is very likely in America. It's very likely a place called Zion. There shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. There are so many scriptures which give this indication. For thus says the Eternal, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish you, praise you, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnants of Israel. Who are his people? Who is the remnants of spiritual Judah today? And who is it that God says he will gather in Haggai to the two witnesses, if you will, Joshua and Zerubbabel in Haggai and Zechariah? That message is there, that he will cause his name to be set, and people will go there, go up to Zion, and God will save his remnant, his faithful, from wherever they might be. And they'll come to a place in Ephraim, call Zion, and be saved there. How clear can it be? Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travails with child together, a great company shall return there. God is going to bring a faithful remnant from all over the world. See, the church is scattered everywhere. Most of it is here, but it is scattered around the world, and it's all coming together. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, Ephraim was not the firstborn. Reuben was. But God makes the change. He says, I am putting the blessing of the firstborn on Ephraim. And that is where he called the vast majority of the end-time church was right here. Now, how can we be a company of nations? Well, we're an organization of 50 somewhat independent autonomous states, a company of peoples joined together under one banner. Hear the word of the eternal, O you peoples, and declare it in the islands afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. So God has scattered the church, but God is going to regather all who are faithful, put the remnant together. For the Eternal has redeemed Jacob. Redeemed from what? Will be redeemed from the world. We'll see that it is not going to be millions a little later on in the context. He's redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. The world is going to come after God's people. And they will destroy most of them. But God is going to redeem and ransom some. Verse 12. Therefore they shall come and sing in the heights of Zion. 
and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. Remember Isaiah 54, where it says, Come, drink wine and milk without money. God will provide for his people. Same, that this is the same time that he's talking about. Their souls shall be a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Can you imagine that? Not sorrowing anymore at all. That God will provide everything that we need. There may be some dicey times between now and then. There may be some difficulties. But when God turns his face to shine on his faithful remnant, we'll be like a watered garden. Not a thirsty one anymore, but a watered one. Where every plant has all the water it needs. The water, of course, is symbolic of his spirit. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young and old, young men and old together. I'm just talking about young girls here. He refers to the remnant church as a virgin, including both young and old men dancing together. I hope apart, but dancing in unison, let's put it that way. I don't want to dance any old or young guys. <clears throat> except that we'll just be happy and jumping about. Well, kind of like David, you know, the time when the ark came back and he just danced in the streets. And I'm sure there are others who caught the enthusiasm of the moment and began dancing around too. Uh, just so happy he couldn't help but dance was the attitude he had. I think that's what this is talking about. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Eternal. God has an awful lot of ill will toward the ministry today. But he is going to, those who repent, who are faithful, who have the right attitudes, are going to be made fat. Uh, fat, not big around necessarily, but that means plenty. But there will be much there to satisfy everyone. Thus says the Eternal, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. There's not a whole lot for us to rejoice about today when we look at Jacob's children's spiritual Israel, the church. It's a pretty pathetic-looking operation today. Thus says the Eternal, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded. Remember what he tells the faithful remnant in Haggai and Zephaniah and other places, to fear not, to be of good courage, to be strong, and to work. And here he says that that work will be rewarded. Says the Eternal, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. The enemy is Satan's society. It is this world around us. We have been scattered in it, influenced by it, and taken captive of it. God will break that yoke, even as he's told us not to be walked on anymore, but to rise up and break the yoke off our neck. 
And there is hope in your end, says the Eternal, that your children shall come again to their own order. I think I take this as the children of the church, those spiritual faithful, and yet it could even have some meaning for we in the church and our children who have gone back out into the world, who are not interested, have not been called at this point. Some of the things they've been taught may come back to them, and when they're old, they won't depart. They may come running back, realizing that, yes, God is in that truth and in those people, and that church that was and that basically is no more. God is going to have a revival such as the world has never seen. And he is going to produce physical and spiritual blessings that will make it so obvious. See, spiritual blessings, in some respects, are hard to quantify. If you have, let's say today, a good attitude, you're smiling and you're happy and you feel good inside. That's hard to quantify, isn't it? There are other people that could be cheery and merry in St. George or Chicago. Could have a good attitude that day in or out of the church. So that's hard to quantify. If we are to receive the kind of blessing that will be an example to the world, a light on a mountain or on a hill that cannot be hid, it has to be something that other people can see. Something that they can relate to. If they see people who are crippled and cancerous and diabetic and whatever else their malady may have been, absolutely healed, that's something they can see and quantify. Remember, miracles are not for, for believers, but for non-believers. Those people in Pentecost and Acts 2 were already believers. They believed God was there. They had tarried and waited in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. Were those miracles that day for them? No, they were the faithful. Those miracles were done for the unbelieving. Thousands of people were converted as a result of what God showed right there. It wasn't for the believers. It was for the unbelievers. What happens with us will not be as much for us, if we're counted faithful and this comes upon us, won't be for us. It'll be for others who see and are drawn by it. What will God use to stir those people? Only he knows completely, but he gives us an awful lot of clues and promises within his word that can tell us but it is going to be physical and obviously, or spiritual and physical, obviously, blessings. They have to be something that other people can see. Now, we'll be satisfied with goodness and the blessings of God that we look forward to, but others can also see. So he said, don't weep for your children. God has the answers. Now, we look today... And we want to cry. We want to weep. We want to be sad for the destruction we see in our friends and our relatives and our own children. But God says, look beyond that. There is hope. 
He will take care of it. Your work shall be rewarded. There is hope at the end. Your children will come again to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. You have chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. We've been just like a young bull that was trying to be trained, or they were training, to pull a cart. And a young bull does not want a rope put around his neck. He does not want pulled. He does not want a yoke put over his shoulders and around his neck and have to pull a cart. I mean, when he was born as a cat, he ran about freely. And someone starts putting restrictions on him, what does he do? He balks, he bucks, he pulls back. That's why this example is used. When God begins to punish us like you would a bullock with a whip or a electric prod we might use today or however, to get that bullock to do what you want it to do. You can't reason with one, can you? When we are in a pride mode, prideful mode, full of vanity and ego, God cannot reason with us. Logic will not work. There came a time when God said, all right, I'll have to punish I will have to make you hurt. And he has made us hurt. And that is what gets our attention. It's like training that kind of animal. We're unaccustomed to the yoke. We have to live up to the standard of God, to the standard of Jesus Christ. And that is a yoke that we do not like to take on. Now we like the yoke of the world, don't we? That is fairly familiar and comfortable. We are part of a society and a culture in this country today, which we grew up in. And we're used to burgers and fries and Chevrolets and Toyotas. No, excuse me. Two things, America. But those will be taken away. Our culture and society is going to change. Now, God is asking us to change ahead of time. Remember when made in USA was a thought of pride. It is increasingly becoming a thought of lack of quality. And Walmart today carries 70% of its products made in China. The pride in America is going to be destroyed. The pride of our power is going to be taken away. Now, God asks you and me to throw that yoke off before a coalition of nations removes it, removes the society. God hates. I cannot put that strongly enough. God hates American society and culture. Do you and I hate it? He hates it so badly He is going to absolutely destroy it and send its people into captivity. Now, do we have the same view of American society that God does? Maybe that's putting it a little differently than I have in times past, saying we needed to come away from this world and the things that are in this world 
God hates the American society. Loathes it. But it's a yoke you and I are accustomed to. Something we grew up in. Something that has been dear to us. It's not dear to God. He's going to do away with it. And he's told us now to come out of it, not to be a part of it, not to look like it, act like it, sound like it. Or we'll be destroyed with it. If we look like a uh, duck, not a schmuck, we sound like one, walk like one, we'll be destroyed like one. If we're an American to the core, we'll be destroyed with the American core. Now, God has to be able to look down, brethren, and see a vast difference between us and what it is that he is about to destroy. And if he can't see a difference, he's going to destroy us with it. Ninety percent of the church is going to be destroyed along with the culture of the world. We have a chance ahead of time to repent, to shake that yoke off, and to look more like God than we do like this world. Now, that's the challenge that is before us. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself, you have chastised me, chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn you me, and I shall be turned, for you are the eternal my God. Now, in that end of that verse is an awful lot of instruction for you and me. We have trouble turning ourselves. We have to ask God to turn us. Of and by ourselves, overcoming and coming to be like God is an impossible task. We may have committed ourselves to it at baptism, but we find that the battle itself is very difficult. So we need to go on our knees and say, God, help turn me. I cannot do this on my own. I need to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And I must have your help to do it. You can't change your mind, your attitudes, your actions on your own beyond a certain point. Now, people out in the world can diet. People out in the world can learn to manage their finances. They can learn to do certain things through pride and will worship. But when it comes to controlling attitudes and coming to have godly attitudes, and all our thoughts, we need his help. So there's much here. Turn you me, and I shall be turned. Go to God for help. That's what the Holy Spirit is there for, to be a comforter, a strengthener, a help. That's why we need God's Spirit. For you are the Lord my God. Surely, after that I was turned... I repented, and after that, I was instructed. So God has to put pressure on us to get us to begin to turn. And after that, we're willing to be instructed. This is all about attitude. I talked about that some last week. 
It is all about attitudes. An attitude of pride, vanity, and ego, or an attitude of humility, meekness, and teachability. If we are not humble and teachable, God has no use for us. He hates pride. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble and the lowly. That's Old Testament and New Testament teaching. So, the whip to the bullock, the repentance, the instruction, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. We can look at our lives, what we've done, where we've been, and the attitudes that those things have left us with. We were shaped as we grew up. And we came to have certain attitudes, many of which were ungodly, and all of them based on selfishness, pride, vanity, and ego. And that's what God is doing to the church right now, is crushing the pride, ego, and spiritual pride out of us until we become, in that sense, an empty vessel. Humble, meek, ready to be taught, ready to listen, eager to hear. Now, most people in the church today have not yet accomplished that. They're eager to speak, eager to talk, eager to voice their opinion, eager to let someone else know how brilliant they are spiritually and how much they understand that they are eager to do. But those who are humble, meek, teachable, ready to hear, are few indeed. That includes the ministry and the people who go to listen. Most of the ministry will not listen. They're full of pride, ego, and vanity. They have all the answers. No, they don't. Neither do I. I hope I'm slowly learning answers. If someone brings something to me, I need to be willing to listen up to a point. If I can see that it is not scripturally correct, then I am obliged to reject it, but if I examine it and find that it is truly scriptural, I'm obliged to accept it and teach it. So I can't have spiritual pride and vanity, and neither can you. We must all be humble before the Word of God. That does not come naturally. So we are ashamed and even confounded because of the attitudes that we have today that stem from our youth. We've got to change them. We've got to be instructed. We've got to become meek, willing to listen. Verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Well, God says, You're my children. You're spiritual Israel. You're the children I called out of this world. You didn't begin to grow up the way I wanted you to. You became spiritually full of pride, vanity, and ego, and therefore the message to the Laodiceans in Revelation 3. I wanted you to be meek, humble, lovable, obedient servants. Dear children, my lovable child, pleasant children. If a child is disrespectful, rebellious, whining, crying, complaining, 
selfish, that is not pleasant to a parent, difficult to deal with, hard to change. is isn't pleasant at all. What is pleasant? Smiling, happy, compliant, obedient, serving, giving. That's pleasant to a parent. I remember my children when they were little bitty and I could carry them around on my arms. And how we had wonderful times when we were playing together, laughing together, enjoying life together, bouncing them up and down on the bed, tickling them, rolling on the floor and tickling and giggling and laughing. And they were in good, pleasant, happy, cheerful moods. Those are wonderful memories. I can cast back in my memory and remember rebellions and sullenness and pouting and crying and whining. That is not a pleasant memory to dredge up. God wants us happy, obedient, desirous of being like him, loving each other, helping each other, serving each other, compliant, obedient, respectful of one another, not crying and fighting among ourselves like little children are prone to do. My two boys had a competition between them most of their young lives. They're not nearly so bad today as they were (laughs) then, but there is still a certain spirit of competition that comes out between them when they're together. Always competitive. They fought a lot. I didn't find that pleasant. Like they didn't find it pleasant when I didn't find it pleasant. Because I intervened. But it was hard for them to change that and be compliant and loving and humble to each other. It wasn't human nature to do that. To fight, to try to be preeminent and predominant was what they were about. Very carnal. They could be very pleasant at times, and they could be a pain in the behind at times. I preferred the pleasant. So does God. So he says, is Ephraim, my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? Or since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. I can remember, God says, when you were first little children, very teachable, so eager to learn the truth, leading toward baptism, you were a dear and pleasant child yearning for God's way. Then something happened. You got full of pride, ego, spiritual vanity, thought you were really something. And then I had to speak against you. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Eternal. So God is going through a troubling time emotionally with us. You know how it is when your kids are fighting and won't quit? And you have to intervene and yell at them maybe or spank them or take away privileges or whatever you have to do to get them to be what they ought to be. How it roils your insides up and you hate the conflict and the frustration and the rebellion and the attitudes and the sullenness and the whining and the crying and the disrespect. God would only tolerate so much of that. I'm tired of my guts being in an uproar over you. I'll straighten you out. 
So he's taking a hand to do just that. But he knows when he gets our attitudes straight, he will have mercy upon us. He knows himself that well. Do we know him that well? Can we look at the stars like I was looking at last night? It was a clear, cold night here. And the stars just shone beautiful. And I had to say, there is a God. I look at the things that he's made. And they're friendly, essentially, toward mankind. The sky, the trees, the water, the animals. They're beautiful things. People can be beautiful things. I know there's a God. Has to be a God. And if I look at the beauty of the creation he's made, I know that when this is all over, he will show mercy. He's shown mercy in how intricately and carefully and wonderfully he has even made us. And he wants us to be what we should be. He doesn't want to see us rebellious. Well, that's what this is all about. His bowels have been troubled. His insides in an uproar. And he wants relief. He wants peace. God wants peace like we want peace. So he says, verse 21, Set you up waymarks. Make you high heaps. Set your heart toward the highway, even the way which you went. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these, your cities, your people. In other words, you need a guide to get back where you ought to be. When Mr. Armstrong, we're off, can't talk. When Mr. Armstrong said we're off the track, I was trying to say off the path and out of the road at the same time. Three thoughts conflicting. But we went off the path. And he says, set up signs, set up heat, set up piles of rocks. Have you ever done that out in the mountains or somewhere? You've set up things to help guide you back. I've done that hunting in the North Woods where every tree looks alike with orange surveyor's tape. Maybe the moose kill or something that I needed to go out and come back. So I tied those flags on a tree periodically so I could find my way back. God says, set up waymarks. Build a highway. Make it clear where the path is to be that you need to go on. Know the way which you went. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, to these your cities. Find your way back. That doesn't mean we ought to go back to Dallas and Chicago. That means we need to find the city of God. That's what Zion, Jerusalem, and the church are, is the city of God. Those good congregations we had before we went bad and got in the wrong attitude. We need to find our way back to the old paths, to the attitudes of teachability and compliability and respectability that we had when we were being converted to those attitudes. How long will you go about, O oh, you backsliding daughter, all four feet planted against the rope, struggling and dragging so hard for us to go the direction God wants us to go? The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The carnality, the humanness of us, is so strong 
against the spiritual of God? How long will you go about or turn the wrong way, backsliding daughter? For the eternal has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now, that's the way it's going to be. Generally, in the way of the world, in the way of mankind, men court women. And that is what the churches are still trying to do. They're going out and courting the woman, the church, trying to get members, trying to build big organizations, seeking to put together a large membership because they want to do a work that they imagine needs to be done at this point in time with the world, not understanding what God is doing right now. So, the men, in that sense, of the churches are still trying to court the woman. But God says when this thing turns around, he's going to do it entirely differently. Remember Isaiah 4, where it says seven women will take hold of one man. Seven churches, all seven, in the book, in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, that are extant upon the earth now, and all the churches and groups fall somewhere within the a definition of those seven. God says in Isaiah 41, he will plant seven trees in the wilderness. So this time, instead of the ministry going out and trying to round up a church, or the shepherds, if you will, going out trying to find flocks, trying to gather together big organizations, it's going to be just the opposite. In this case, God is going to begin to bless the leadership and the woman, the church, will come and court the man. Now that man, whoever he is, is Zerubbabel in the end time church. Zerubbabel and Joshua will be the leaders. Zerubbabel being the overall leader of the two. That's the way it will be. And they will not have to go out and round up the woman or the church. God says he will stir and they will come. That's the way it's going to be done. This is in reference to that. See, the backsliding daughter, the woman, the Virgin of Israel is going to have her attitude changed. When she sees the 10% that do see, she will go to the leadership. It will not be a matter of having to go out and round people up. God will stir them to come, as the book of Haggai very clearly shows. Even in the Zechariah 6, it says that they will come from great distances to work in the temple. They will come on their own. So, right now, to try to build a big organization from people in the world, it is obvious God is not calling many right now, maybe a few at the 11th hour. But none of those who are trying to do that kind of work are having any success anywhere near what Worldwide had when, when God was calling people to the church. In fact, the return is pretty pitiful. And for anyone to go out right now just with a message to the church and try to draw it together, 
I can tell you this, it cannot happen. That is not what God has laid out to occur. He has said he will draw a faithful 10% remnant. They will come together to the leadership that he puts in place. That's the way it will occur. That's the way Jerusalem will be built back from her own heaps, from the rubble of the church. God will stir people to come. If you think you can go out and build an organization today by pursuing the woman, you are going to have a very futile task ahead of you. To those who think they can do it. And there are many. All you have to do is paw through the journal a little bit. And you have all these ads by all these different groups who are trying to show that they have the best information, they have all the answers, and that the whole church should come to them. Now, they won't put it quite that plainly, but you know that's what's in their mind is the reason they put the ad there. They think they have something special that everyone needs to come to. Some will put it <laughs> that way very bluntly. Some will be more subtle. But that's essentially what they want. It's not going to be done that way. Mainly their ads are falling on deaf ears. People will transfer back and forth one group to another. And each in every group, including this one, has people coming and going. Seeking, trying to find, and having difficulty. When God decides to put it together, a woman will court a man. It's a new thing. Different approach. Different way. Verse 23, Thus says the eternal opposed to the God of Israel, As yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. That is scary. When God calls that faithful remnant a habitation of justice and a mountain of holiness. Look at yourself today. Would you consider yourself a mountain of holiness? Maybe we should start with a hill. Are we a hill of holiness? How much holiness resides in us? And yet, Haggai says we're to separate the clean from the unclean, and many scriptures tell us to become holy in thought and in deed, to be holy as God is holy. So that faithful remnant will be looked upon as the place where justice lives and a place of holiness. A whole mountain of it. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen and they, get, and they that go forth with flocks. For I have satisfied the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and behold and beheld and my sleep was sweet to me. The horror, the nightmare that we've been going through we're going to wake up and see beauty and pleasantness. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. 
Remember Zechariah 2, where he says, Jerusalem shall be built as towns without walls, and much men and cattle there. These scriptures all tie together and are speaking of the same time, where God begins to bless his church at the end, and ultimately then they are used as part of the 144,000 of the Bride of Christ, which become that kind of blessing to all physical Israel and the rest of the world as well. But it has to start with spiritual Israel. And he is going to sow us with the seed of man and the seed of a beast. Now, in the world tomorrow, we won't be seated with the seed of man. We'll be God at that point. So if it's a seed of man, he's still dealing with us while we're still men here on the earth, and we'll have the seed of beast. Towns without walls with men and cattle. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, says the Eternal. Now, do you think he's done a good job of afflicting and tearing down and destroying the church? Has God done a pretty good job? How many organizations are there today? How many individuals out there on their own? He's done a pretty good job of leveling it, and he isn't done it yet. Well, now, if we have to admit he's done such a good job of tearing it down, now he's telling us, I'm going to do just as good a job of rebuilding it. That's beautiful. That's exciting. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, <laughs> and the children's teeth are set on edge. Isn't that the way spiritual life in the church has been lately? It's like eating a sour grape. You know how that feeling goes up and down your spine when you bite into that bitter, sour thing? Or like chomping into a lemon? It's like the parents are chewing sour grapes, and the children are affected by it. You know? You wonder why your children have an attitude. Look in the mirror. Where'd they get it? Where'd it come from? But it's going to change. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. We will be answerable to ourselves, and our children will not be affected. We eat the sour grapes, we'll get in trouble with God. Ezekiel 33 is a good one to tie in there. I won't bring, go there now, but it talks about every man uh, reaping what he sows. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Eternal. He married them. And they said that they would do everything he said and live lovingly in his house, and they didn't. I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and, they will be, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He writes it in there with the Holy Spirit. We don't need to wear blue tassels on our clothes today to remind us of God's law. We have his spirit. And he has begun that new covenant with us. 
Now it is going to spread and be offered to all Israel and ultimately the whole world. But where did he begin it? With the church. Beginning in Acts 2. When he sent his Holy Spirit and began to make a new covenant with those people. And we are continuing in that. Most of the world is not privy to that covenant. It has not been offered to them. It has only been offered to a few who have been called out of this world, shown God's way, and offered that covenant. Imagine what a blessing it is, brethren. Sometimes we get downtrodden and feel like we're downtrodden. But consider that God has only given his truths to really a few thousand people out of the six and a half billion that walk the face of this earth today. We get a little perplexed at times seeing what is happening in the world, seeing the misery, the famine, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, the frustration, the diseases, the wars, everything that's going on right now on this planet. We know how it's going to turn out. We know God's blessing is going to come to those who will obey him and that we'll become the bride of Christ and rule the world as kings and priests forever in beauty and peace and happiness. No more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow. But most of the world does not have the comfort of those scriptures. They don't understand them. And even the ones who claim to be religious don't even know what they're talking about. And they're not included. They don't know what it is that they're worshiping. We have God's Spirit. And he has offered a new covenant of marriage to us as the bride of Christ. And he has rejected physical Israel, divorced her. She's a divorcee. Until the world tomorrow. We've been offered a new covenant of marriage with better promises, eternal life, and delivery from this world. Incredibly, we have been blessed. They shall be my people, verse 34, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, says the eternal, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the covenant of promise through Jesus Christ he's made, that our sins will be washed away in his blood. And even though we have been very sinful of late, and he has driven us apart to get rid of our spiritual pride and vanity, to make us humble and meek, we have the offer of forgiveness. doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, who you are, how bad you've been, it all comes under the blood of Jesus Christ. And he walked away from and forgotten, and his face will shine upon us again. Thus says the Eternal, which gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Eternal, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. 
Thus says the Eternal, If heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Eternal. Can we change the day and night cycle? Can we change the ordinances, the rules that God has set in the heavens? He can. He's done it. He changed it from 360 to 365 and a quarter and created some confusion for us. He is going to change it back. He can change the times and seasons. Man can try, but man can't do it. But God says that he is going to turn and bless us and that there is no getting around it. It will happen unless we can change night and day. I think that's a pretty strong promise a blessing from God. Verse 38, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that the city shall be built to the Eternal from the Tower of Hananiel to the gate of the corner. In other words, all the way around Jerusalem. All the way around the wall. All the way around the city. All the gates will be rebuilt. He is going to build a church like no church has ever been. He's going to put together a faithful remnant who will obey him, who've gone through spiritual trial, trouble, and tribulation, become humble, become meek, become obedient, have quit backsliding and pulling against the rope, but who will be willing to be led meekly, quietly, humbly in God's way. That's the kind of people he's looking for, and he's going to build the city back with that kind of people who will respond to his spirit and walk by his spirit in all his laws, his ways, his precepts, his paths. And the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Gareb and shall compass about to Goath. Remember, he's going to put the measuring line, the plumb line, the rod, if you will, in the hands of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the end time ministry in the latter temple. You think we need to get rid of the ministry today, and if you don't need anyone to teach you, you've got another thing coming. God is going to put that plumb line clearly in their hands. It says in Zechariah, it says here, it says in Isaiah, it says all the way through. It says in Revelation 11, to measure the church, to measure the altar, and then the worship therein. Forget about the Gentiles, forget about the rest of the world for the moment. Measure the church, and we all have to pass under the rod. Those leaders will be given that authority by God to determine who and who does not measure up. They will be required to follow the standard of God's Word, and if there's any part of God's Word that you are not willing to follow you will not be included. It's that simple. That is going to require some humility, but that's what God wants. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields to the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the eternal. It shall not be plucked up nor thrown down any more forever. Once God builds the latter temple through the spiritual faithful at the end, 
It will never, ever be taken away. Those people are part of the foundation for the government of God in the world tomorrow as the bride of Christ. Now, there are many others who are dead in their graves awaiting that, who were faithful at the time they lived, early people in the New Testament church through the Middle Ages perhaps, Abraham, Isaac, David, David, Jacob, Daniel, they're all included. Hebrews 11, for instance. And that bride of Christ, 144,000. But this end time work, once God puts it back together, and we all go under the rod, we all pass through the measuring line to check us for spiritual straightness, to be up and down, not leaning to one side or the other, but spiritually vertical. The plumb line will be used, the plumb line being the Word of God, whether we're willing to follow it or not. This is the Word. That's why the priesthood is told in Haggai, the ministry, to separate the clean from the unclean. They will be given that discretion, and this is the measuring, uh, or what we are measured against, is this Word. So we can't just have everybody believing everything they want to believe, as we heard in the sermonette. We must all come to speak the same thing. Paul said that is the goal of the is a goal of the church that we all speak the same thing. Now, if we're not speaking the same thing, that is unacceptable to God. We must come together in the unity of the Spirit and not be a house divided against ourselves. You cannot have your own beliefs apart from the leadership and this word that God will set before us. There will come a time when it will not be tolerated. That's what's coming. God will not have naysayers. He will not have those who are independent Christians anymore. Now, to some degree, he is tolerating it today but he will only tolerate it so far. And he is clearly going to give the plumb line, the measuring rod, and we'll all have to come under the rod and be inspected for dirty fur and couple furs. Or dirty wool, not fur, as sheep. That's where God's heading with this. And it's going to take humility and meekness for us to accept that. And most of the church will not do it. They'll, they'll go into the tribulation rather than do it. So, if you think you can be an independent Christian, you better get over it. You will not be included in the latter temple, a mountain of holiness, unless you do it according to what God prescribes and lays down through his leadership. That's coming very soon. But if we're not going to be plucked up or thrown down anymore, it has to be right, doesn't it? Doesn't it have to be that which is holy and righteous? Because anything that is not holy and righteous will be plucked up. So we have to attain to that level. Well, let's see. I don't think I have time really to get into another chapter, so we're going to stop right there for today. 
the end of chapter 31. There's an awful lot of incredible promise and blessing there that we'll be willing to break the yoke of Babylon and accept the yoke of God. Be willing to do things the way God wants them done. And we'll be a part of that faithful remnant. We're going to be given blessing such as we have never, ever seen before. And it will be a blessing that God will never take away, but it will be kept forever. That's what he's looking for in us. So he says, quit dragging your feet and let's get with the program. Do what God wants done. Become holy and you will be included and go forth and sing in the heights of Zion and dance and joy when God returns the blessings to his latter temple. That's what's coming up soon. And those who will not respond are going to go into the tribulation and die with the rest of physical Israel. So we have a very, very important time coming. And that's why he says, set up rocks, set up stones, so you can see the way where I want you to go. You'll find the right path. Stay on it. Don't lose it. Because there is so much writing right now. As we see the world coming apart around us, we know things are getting very, very close. But our focus should not really be on what's happening in the world. Our focus needs to be on what's happening inside us and inside God's church. Because preparing the bride and getting our attitudes right, turning to God with our whole heart, is our key to finding Him. Worrying about the Iranians and the Russians and the Chinese is not what it's about. It's about holiness and righteousness. That should be our main concern, not who and when and how this is coming down. Yes, we need to be aware. God tells us to watch, pray, that we be able to escape these things. But the escape is not going to be being in a certain spot. The escape is going to become from being accounted worthy to escape it. Because that abomination of desolation is going to be set up where Jerusalem without walls is made and where the faithful of God have gathered. But all those will not be accounted worthy to escape. Some of those who come there will be left behind. So being in that place at that time is not the answer in itself. We must be holy. We must be just. And we must be willing to follow God's words. We must be humble and meek and teachable. Or we will not be accounted worthy to be a part of the bride of Christ. That's what it boils down to. But those who will repent and who are willing to come to holiness and have the clean and the unclean sorted out in their lives are going to be blessed as none other have ever been. That's the lesson from Jeremiah 31.